welcome to a very special episode 45 of the Video Game History Hour presented by the Video Game History Foundation. I am absolutely not Kelsey Lewin, but I am Frank Cifaldi, and that's got to count for something, right? I'm recording this solo to give you a quick heads up that the show is going on a brief hiatus. Uh, Don't worry, everything's fine. We'll be back soon. But we've got a lot going on in uh, both our personal lives and with our foundation work, uh, including a big office move that... Uh, I'm excited for, but also don't want to think about right now because, oh my God, paper is really heavy. Uh, and it's making weekly recordings a little more challenging than we'd like it to be right now. So we'd rather skip a few weeks than try to cram episodes out that wouldn't hit our quality mark. Um, in the meantime, we're going to leave you with a little bonus content. So way back in episode 30, we had a long talk with our friend Ben Hansen about the challenges we've all faced uh, while doing historical interviews. And it didn't quite fit into the episode, but uh, a lot of you have told us that you really like when we kind of get into the weeds on our process. And and I think and hope that this candid talk uh, does a good job of putting you right into our shoes. So enjoy the talk and we will see you soon. Okay. So it seems like the topic of discussion here is things that annoy us in historical interviews. <laughs> I mean, I think is that's that... interesting. <laughs> um, I don't There's know not if... enough of them. There's not that? enough of them. Um, but I, I don't know if it's annoyed, but it's, I, I feel like um, something that most of us suffer from, myself included, is just, um, just forgetting to get into the details of things. Yeah. You know, like, uh, I feel like I'm so wanting to have a story told that uh, that I, I, I sometimes, if I'm doing an historical interview, just um, I don't really let the person on the other end like breathe and talk about what was important from their perspective. Um, so that's 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 something that's really difficult for me. Is that sort of like a because something that I think this is sort of what you're talking about that I struggle with is making sure I'm freely listening to what the response is and then digging yeah. further on that. I think that's something that probably a lot of interviewers struggle with because it's, I don't know, I would I would say one of the most difficult skills to try to build up is not just coming armed with questions and instead like learning how to get the the right questions on the fly. Yeah, staying flexible, having like a rough roadmap, but I need to get better about this as well. Um, but just having more time for follow-up questions. Like mm. I think when you prepare your interview questions, I think it's it was oh it would always be helpful if you just cut half the amount of questions and then just focused on doubling down on follow-up questions. Because even myself, when I'm editing or going through interviews that I conducted, it's like there are so many dead ends where I just forgot to follow up or I mean, the biggest thing is seeing, oh my gosh, the developer is so passionate about this topic, but because the question was about this topic, you choose to follow up on that one where it's like, just take the time, have the time (laughs) in your schedule to follow up on that beat just to see what's going on there. And in particular, what drives me nuts just as a fan um, is the lack of follow-up questions in general, but specifically with Japanese developers. I think there's something about the translation process where people, you're already so tight on type on time just because you're cutting your time in half with the translation that I think a lot of people are just so eager to move on 
Whereas I think it's really beneficial with a lot of these Japanese developers, especially ones that are getting older, to like get their stories down and really try to dive in more by asking follow-up question after follow-up question about you know whatever they they're talking about that seems interesting. I think people just let so much fly because they're so focused on getting the next question translated. Well, and I think with um, Japanese developers, if if you're not a Japanese speaker. Um, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to tell if they actually understood the question. Yep. Um, you know, if, yeah. if it was interpreted correctly. Um, and yeah, that's something I have a hard time following up with. Like I, um, I interviewed uh, Iwatani about uh, Pac-Man once, and and what I was interested in was, uh, and luckily, you know, he did understand enough to give some good answers. I was just interested in like who is Pac-Man to you? <laughs> you know, like, like what is this? Does, does this character have a personality? Like, like what, like what is the Pac-Man that lives in your head? And, and, and the answer and, is Pac-Man is an arcade game that we released. <laughs> no, actually um, he was pretty good and I could have followed up more, but he was explaining, like, I, I think he got the question, which, and, and the way he explained it, at least the way my interpreter, the, the interpreter explained it was that um, he's pretty dumb. Uh, he's, he's, he's basically a child and he's, he's very food motivated. And so wait, what is baby? He's Pac-Man? very, he's very simple. Um, well, he didn't, I don't know. I, like I'm he, just, he's, I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> but, but I mean, m- mentally, you know, mm-hmm. in, in his mind, Pac-Man is just this food motivated, you know, almost animalistic idiot right who's <laughs> just like who just wants to eat um but he's also happy you know like we we talked about other concepts he'd want to do with the character and he wants to make a game about pac-man singing you know like and it's mm. i i think but i i, I mean I, I brought this up as like a negative to myself but it's like it's also a positive like like that's i think the kinds of stuff we should be talking to creators about it's like you know there we have the narrative of how people consume your media. We don't necessarily have the narrative about how you consume your own media or, or, you know, how, how these characters uh, are in your head or, or like what the, what features you thought were the most interesting in this product. Yeah. I remember um, when we visited Capcom for the Mega Man 11 cover story back at Game Informer, we talked to the art director who, I know for sure worked on like the original Mega Man Legends. And I think he went before that even, but we asked him about his take on Mega Man. And he had like the best answer, which is the scientific breakdown of, oh, he's 40% courageous. And (laughs) and I remember he's 10% aloof. It's like Mm. a weird detail about Mega Man that I've never thought of. And PR was just in a tizzy about like, we, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't call Mega Man aloof. (laughs) You nuts? Like I don't understand how this is insulting, and maybe like, oh no, you can't call Mega Man ten percent stupid. That won't stand. And so it's a big debate about the translation of ultimately something that translates to aloof. Wow, I I don't even know how that's reflected. And I guess I didn't play the Legends games. I don't. I've never played one where Mega Man, you know, he actually like has a personality, right? Personal decisions <laughs> to make or whatever. But yeah, it, it doesn't really yeah come up too often. But yeah, I like the idea of just seeing how. Yeah, those developers actually see their creation and how disconnected it can, it can be often when it becomes a brand and it's just a runaway success and people know it on the lunchbox, but they don't know exactly, oh, there's a personality behind this system. Right. Well, and also yeah. like, you know, what was the ramp up 
to that because I'm sure for, you know, at least the beginning of Mega Man's life or Pac-Man's life, like he probably wasn't thinking about Pac-Man having a personality or Mega Man having a personality. I mean, maybe they were, maybe, maybe, maybe they were thinking of that from the beginning, but I, I almost wonder like when those things start to take shape, like, is that, is that a couple games in that they start to see a personality in it? Or is it yeah. you know, something you know from the beginning? And I mean, I don't, that's another question you can ask, right? Right. And I think, yeah, with developers and translations, something I found, it seems so stupid, but it always works surprisingly well is when you talk about you're not sure if things are being translated. And it's not the fault of the tra- translator. It's a tough job, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just found repeating things and having that translated again is always helpful. Like they'll say, you know, 10% aloof or whatever. And then you say 10% aloof and then just sending that back through the relay to see <laughs> if it'll actually land. And then they say, oh, well, actually it's more like this. Just like giving them that option to clarify just to let them know how things were translated to you or give the translator another crack at it. It just feels like they always explode on that second chance of, oh, I can actually dive into this a little bit more. And that's where I think a lot of good stuff comes from. It's very, um, very Metal Gear Solid too. That's- <laughs> D? Really? Yeah. It's yeah. a really good tip, though. I, I don't think I've ever used that one. To... Yeah, just be solid snake if you're yeah. in an interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the and... greatest interviewer of all time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do think the other part of the issue that, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about not always being able to see the opportunities to dig deeper as they happen is, I mean, if you could always book two interviews at a time, like, I'm going to, we're going to do this interview. And then a week later, after I've like transcribed Mm. this interview and read it again, I'm going to have follow-up questions. Like if that was standard practice, I think we'd eliminate a lot of the, the sort of issues that we're running into here, because that's when I have my insights is like, you know, in the shower the next day, I'm like, oh, when they said that, I wonder if that's connected to this other, you know, and right. But you don't think about that at the time. And, you know, maybe there are, there probably are plenty of developers who are willing to talk to you again, but it always just feels like a like a big ask to be like, I know you've already given me an hour or an hour and a half. Can you give me another hour? Because I got follow-up questions. Right. No, that would help for sure. <laughs> totally right. We should do more of that. Um, yeah. The, the weird thing is interviewing old legends, like interviewed Sakaguchi recently on our YouTube channel over at MinMax. And um, going through all these Sakaguchi interviews just for reference was just fascinating because it's like, Three million people have asked him what his favorite Final Fantasy is. Asked him why doesn't he make a new Chrono Trigger? I mean, all so these. Don't like, ask those again. <laughs> that's exactly it. But I think the weird catch, and I, I'm proud to hopefully have asked him some new questions. Um, but at the same time, it's like, are, am I screwing my audience or the MinMax community out of fun answers by being too hoity-toity about like uh, only new questions for me? <laughs> Do you think there's any role for any of that? what's your favorite, what's your favorite game to work on? Or is it just for the sake of history, we need to plow new ground with every interview? Well, I think answers can change over time. Mm -hmm. I I mean, is is my immediate reaction to that is, you know, I think it can absolutely be worth asking those questions again, even if they serve, you know, for no other reason than to just see if the answer changes over time. Well, I'm also a big believer in, um, scraping even further at at like a scar i don't know like you know like just (laughs) just like because something like what's your favorite final fantasy um that is obviously a topic that uh the world has shown is of interest 
yeah. when talking to Sakaguchi, right? So um I think it's possible to to uh dive deeper in that, right? I I, I don't think you do it by just trying yeah. to get the cool sound clip for the the video or whatever, but it's um if you're able to look at all the times he's answered that and and like find a pattern, you know, that might be a good way of getting even deeper. And I mean, I just think of things like, you know, I I've I've done articles on like how Nintendo launched the NES in 1985 even though someone literally wrote a book about that already. It's like you can still mm-hmm. scrape at this thing that people really care about and get new details and then they'll you know, care about it in a different way. And and I think there, there might be something to that. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I, I think, you know, I hope other interviewers out there are reading other interviews, especially like if, if they're on the PR circuit, like read every interview they've done on that junket so far, it'll inform mm-hmm. you and spark so many new questions and ideas in your brain. And like you said, you know, it's interesting to compare answers versus the past and go back in the past and read some interviews and see what has changed, what they're interested in, those lingering dead ends. You know, it doesn't need to be a follow-up to your interview, like you mentioned, Kelsey. It could be a follow-up to Polygon's interview from right. six years ago, where you just you find all these dead ends all over the place that hopefully can be new areas to explore for history. Well, and I've, I've done exactly what Frank is talking about before, too, by looking at other people's interviews and, you know, basically just forcing that up again. Like, so... I read this, you know, you said this in an interview, let's go deeper on that. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be you asking the question first for it to be, you know, for it to be worthwhile for sure. I think, you know, if, if the answer stops at what's your favorite final fantasy and like you don't go any further, then that's kind of useless. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) as long as that's not where you end the interview, I think that's, there's, yeah, there could be a lot of value in that. Yeah. As long as you're getting something out of the interview, except for the headline, the past, present, and future of RPGs with Sakaguchi. <laughs> that's how, every time I see that headline, it just makes me laugh. I'm like, yep, that's that's the go-to headline is the past, present, and future of blank with blank. But hopefully we can get more specific, more specific interviews, I think is is the goal for the future. <laughs> Sakaguchi on blank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so do you, done. just out of curiosity, Ben, I mean, are do you have sort of like, an agenda for who you want to interview? Because some of these, I feel like, you know, they're, they're timed because someone put out a book or, or whatever, but right. are there other people that you're just like, no, I just really want to interview this person because they haven't been interviewed enough or I have things I need to ask them. I mean, how, I how are... them. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit all over the place. Um, but certainly, yeah, there's definitely the things of like Sakaguchi. It's like, okay, clearly with Fantasian, there's a reason for him to talk now. So that seems like it makes sense. Other people... Yeah, I've just always wanted to interview. I have a big list of people that I've wanted to talk to. And so hopefully we can kind of get off that PR train every once in a while and it'll lead to something interesting. I mean, this is so specific. But uh, recently we had an interview with John Dickerson from 60 Minutes, who's the host of Face the Nation. um, And he still works at CBS News. But it was talking to John Dickerson about his love of Age of Empires, which is like... (laughs) It's it's exactly my Venn diagram. I understand <laughs> that that is just fun. And he's never talked about video games before. And he really was eager to talk about him, talk about his history, playing Doom back in the day and stuff. And even now he's looking for like new D&D games to play. And so it's like, oh, here's Baldur's Gate 3. You might actually really enjoy that. And so hopefully they're off the beaten path enough to be interesting for folks. And it's not just, you know, the typical you know, PR rollout of, okay, let's get this developer in front of this person for five minutes and then move on. 
So I, I saw that one, but I haven't listened to it yet. That's fine. How, how, did, how did that one come about? Like, how did you even know that this guy had a history with Age of Empires? I mean, he tweeted about it a couple times. Okay. And like, the Age of Empires fan, it always stood out to me. He's like, what is John Dickerson doing with Age of Empires? And so I think it was like right after the Age of Empires 4 gameplay reveal. I was like, okay, this is the opportunity. And for some reason, he followed me on Twitter. So I'm like, I am sliding into those dms baby we got <laughs> something up here but yeah i think there's kind of a sweet spot for midnight interviews where it's you know a story that's a little bit off the beaten path and also one it really helps that has been informed by uh my history because i was a like, game informer for nine years and i visited so many studios i think like over 80 studios and so like i know so many of these people and remember bits and story like bits and pieces and stories and so there's stuff like um there's a new uh, tactical card game called Trials of Fire. And those developers split off from Rocksteady. And it's like, oh my gosh, I remember hanging out with them on the Arkham Knight cover story trip. And so that was an easier interview to line up for that reason. And then we can talk about Trials of Fire, but then also it's interesting just to talk to those developers about their history working on you know, the Arkham trilogy and you know some internal uh, discussion about what life at Rocksteady was like. I know it's been in the news the last couple of years. And so it was interesting just to hear their perspective or somebody like, um, you know, Tim Longo, uh, who was the creative director for Halo Infinite. He was creative director for Halo 5, goes back to Republic Commando. And before that, I mean, there's a bunch in there, Jedi Starfighter, um, but got to talk to him just about his life and the process of rebooting games like Halo or like Tomb Raider, where he was the original creative director for the 2013 reboot. And part of that is just informed by, oh, uh, I've spent time with him in the past, interviewed him in the past, and now here's a perfect opportunity that is not really popping up in other outlets. Yeah, and I mean, you're making me think just of, I don't know, gaps that could be filled when you're talking about people who used to work at Rocksteady. Um, you know, mentioning the the Arkham trilogy, like I feel like there has never been a good interview about what makes those games work mechanically as well as yeah. they do. And I feel like, you know, I, I think I was, I, I've I said this when the game was out, but I feel like Arkham Knight was really overlooked um, because I think that, um, you know, people kind of saw it as just like the third game in this trilogy, but I'm playing it and I'm like, they have, they have become masters of this specific craft <laughs> of, of, yeah making an Arkham game and this third game, like they, they, they just keep getting better at it. And it's like, you know, that, I don't know if there's ever an opportunity for something like this, but like that, that just seems like another thing that's sort of overlooked when talking to people is like, now that, you know, this game is now passed, you know, you're not on the PR trail for right. it. Like, you know, what, what, like, what is, what is looking back at it reflectively now? Versus, you know, what 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 you talked about when it was a new. Um, totally. And I, with that in particular, I tried for years after Arkham Knight came out to like, yeah. let's have a long form interview with Sefton Hill, the creative director, just to try and shed light on how they pulled that off. And Especially now that it's probably done. I mean, because they're on Suicide oh, yeah. Squad now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But eh, Warner Brothers has got other things to focus on, you know, whatever. Mortal Kombat or whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I, it, I've been uh, I assume you all have been reading that uh, Ask Awada book as well that came out recently. I got it in the mail. I haven't, okay. haven't cracked it open yet. It's It's fascinating to have like there's a little bit towards the end that Miyamoto wrote. And it's just like this nice sliver of, oh, my gosh, it's Miyamoto reflecting on his life and his coworkers a little bit. And he doesn't I, do that. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> he doesn't do that usually. I know. That's the thing. It's like, is the message 
getting to him that, oh my yeah. God, we want you to write a book. Like, please just open, open up your door to somebody like a Walter Isaacson or some biography expert and just please realize how important it is to history to have somebody spend even weeks with you, months with you just to get this stuff down because it's all going away. Yeah. And, you know, Miyamoto in particular, I don't know. Like I, 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 he's such an innovator that I think he'll die without never looking backwards. Yeah. But God, I hope that one day he just is done and he starts thinking about things like this and not only his story, but just being a voice within this organism that is Nintendo, right. That, that has influence you know, probably just about the most influence at a company like Nintendo um, and, and, and pushing them toward, uh, you know, talking openly about this stuff before it's too late or because otherwise it's like we had a wada asks and that's going to be it forever. Well, we had, I mean, there was a Gunpei Akoi book that was being written like right before he died and that has uh, never been translated into English, but it's out there. And that's like the one early Nintendo historical record is just whatever, whatever he said to make this book happen. Um, and yeah, I mean, we just, we have so little of it and, and people have retired out of Nintendo and there's, if I had the means to like, you know, have a, a translator work for me for thousands of hours and <laughs> <laughs> and track people down. I mean, the, any, any person who's, who was with Nintendo for, you know, a significant amount of time probably can shed so much light into, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you called it an organism and it, it really is. It's just like this enormous thing that we still, we still don't understand, even though it's been around for a really, really long time since the 1800s. Yeah. And if we <laughs> ever, if ever got a chance to Talk to Miyamoto again. I think I would try to drill down on that instead of just taking the time, you know, before the interview while you're getting set up to just say, hey, I really like Mario or whatever, you know, dumb shit that people normally make. Like, Sign just my to, Donkey Kong. Yeah, but like just to try to drill home <laughs> the idea of like, Miyamoto, like you're a fan of animation. Like, can you imagine if Walt Disney barely did any interviews? Actually, I don't, I assume he did a fair amount of interviews. I don't know if people are really craving more information. I don't know if what you're talking about Walt Disney. Well, the point is, and just, yeah. just, just to drive home yeah. to Miyamoto, like think of something that he really loves and just try to make that analogy that like, we need this for the historical record. You need to understand and get over your own humility for the sake of history here, dude. I don't even know if it's humility with him. I Oh man, there's this weird part in that uh, Ask Awada book where he talks about how Awada would always compliment him. Uh, and he said, Awada always treated me like a prince. And he says something like, it was so strange to receive a compliment. I was like, really? Like Miyamoto isn't receiving <laughs> You're compliment? Miyamoto. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just not not hitting home for whatever reason. Just not a part of his life. <laughs> Who knows? Well, uh, this is fun hanging out after the show. Uh, thanks, thanks for taking the time, Ben. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. 
This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.